where the merit comes in. It'll all be education for me. Well, in sculpture, you see, the first thing you have to consider is the masses. It's, after all, a kind of architecture, I began, and delivered a lecture on that branch of art with illustrations from my own masterpiece there present, all of which, if you don't mind, or whether you mind or not, I mean to conscientiously omit. Pinkerton listened with a fiery interest, questioned me with a certain uncultivated shrewdness, and continued to scratch down notes and tear fresh sheets from his pad. I found it inspiring to have my words thus taken down like a professor's lecture, and, having had no previous experience of the press, I was unaware that they were all being taken down wrong. For the same reason, incredible as it must appear in an American, I never entertained the least suspicion that they were destined to be dished up with a sauce of penny-aligning gossip, and myself, my person, and my works of art butchered to make a holiday for the readers of a Sunday paper. Night had fallen over the genius of Muskegon before the issue of my theoretic eloquence was stayed, nor did I separate from my new friend without an appointment for the morrow. I was indeed greatly taken with this first view of my countrymen, and continued on further acquaintance to be interested, amused, and attracted by him in about equal proportions. I must not say he had a fault, not only because my mouth is sealed by gratitude, but because those he had sprang merely from his education, and you could see he had cultivated and improved them like virtues. For all that, I can never deny he was a troublous friend to me, and the trouble began early. It may have been a fortnight later that I divined the secret of the writing pad. My wretch, it leaked out, wrote letters for a paper in the West, and had filled a part of one of them with descriptions of myself. I pointed out to him that he had no right to do so without asking my permission. "'Why, this is just what I hoped,' he exclaimed. "'I thought you didn't seem to catch on, only it seemed too good to be true.' "'But, my good fellow, you were bound to warn me,' I objected. "'I know it's generally considered etiquette,' he admitted. "'But between friends, and when it was only with a view of serving you, I thought it wouldn't matter. I wanted it, if possible, to come on you as a surprise.' I wanted you just to waken like Lord Byron and find the papers full of you. You must admit it was a natural thought, and no man likes to boast of a favour beforehand. But heavens on earth, how do you know I think it's a favour? He became immediately plunged in despair. You think it a liberty, said he. I see that. I would rather have cut off my hand. I would stop it now, only it's too late. It's published by now. And I wrote it with so much pride and pleasure. I could think of nothing but how to console him. Oh, I dare say it's all right, said I. I know you meant it kindly, and you would be sure to do it in good taste. That you may swear to, he cried. It's a pure, bright, A-number-one paper, the St. Joe Sunday Herald. The idea of the series was quite my own. I interviewed the editor, put it to him straight. The freshness of the idea took him, and I walked out of that office with the contract in my pocket, and did my first Paris letter that evening in St. Joe. The editor did no more than glance his eye down the headlines. You're the man for us, said he. I was certainly far from reassured by this sketch of the class of literature in which I was to make my first appearance, but I said no more and possessed my soul in patience until the day came when I received a copy of a newspaper marked in the corner, Compliments of J.P. I opened it with sensible shrinkings, and there, wedged between an account of a prize-fight and a skittish article upon chiropody, 
Think of chiropody treated with a leer. I came upon a column and a half in which myself and my poor statue were embalmed. Like the editor with the first of the series, I did but glance my eye down the headlines and was more than satisfied. Another of Pinkerton's spicy chats. Art practitioners in Paris. Muskegon's columned capital. Son of millionaire Dodd. Patriot and artist. He means to do better. In the body of the text, besides, my eye caught, as it passed, some deadly expressions. Figure somewhat fleshy. Bright intellectual smile. The unconsciousness of genius. Now, Mr. Dodd, resumed the reporter, what would be your idea of a distinctively American quality in sculpture? It was true the question had been asked. It was true, alas, that I had answered. And now here was my reply, or some strange hash of it, gibbeted in the cold publicity of type. I thanked God that my French fellow-students were ignorant of English, that when I thought of the British, of Minor, for instance, or the Stennises, I think I could have fallen on Pinkerton and beat him. To divert my thoughts, if it were possible, from this calamity, I turned to a letter from my father, which had arrived by the same post. The envelope contained a strip of newspaper cutting, and my eye caught again, Son of Millionaire Dodd, figure somewhat fleshy, and the rest of the degrading nonsense. What would my father think of it? I wondered and opened his manuscript. My dearest boy, it began, I send you a cutting which has pleased me very much from a St. Joseph newspaper of high standing. At last you seem to be coming fairly to the front, and I cannot but reflect with delight and gratitude how very few youths of your age occupy nearly two columns of press matter all to themselves. I only wish your dear mother had been here to read it over my shoulder, but we will hope she shares my grateful emotion in a better place. Of course, I have sent a copy to your grandfather and uncle in Edinburgh, so you can keep the one I enclose. This Jim Pinkerton seems a valuable acquaintance. He has certainly great talent, and it is a good general rule to keep in with pressmen. I hope it will be set down to the right side of my account, but I had no sooner read these words, so touchingly silly, than my anger against Pinkerton was swallowed up in gratitude. Of all the circumstances of my career, my birth, perhaps, excepted, not one had given my poor father so profound a pleasure as this article in the Sunday Herald. What a fool, then, was I to be lamenting, when I had at last, and for once, and at the cost of only a few blushes, paid back a fraction of my debt of gratitude. So that, when I next met Pinkerton, I took things very lightly. My father was pleased, and thought the letter was very clever, I told him. For my own part, I had no taste for publicity, thought the public had no concern with the artist, only with his art, and though I owned he had handled it with great consideration, I should take it as a favor if he never did it again. There it is, he said despondingly. I've hurt you. You can't deceive me, Loudon. It's the want of tact, and it's incurable. He sat down and leaned his head upon his hand. I had no advantages when I was young, you see, he added. Not in the least, my dear fellow, said I. Only the next time you wish to do me a service, just speak about my work. Leave my wretched person out, and my still more wretched conversation. And above all, I added with an irrepressible shudder, don't tell them how I said it. There's that phrase now, with a proud, glad smile. Who cares whether I smiled or not? 
Oh, there now, Loudon, you're entirely wrong, he broke in. That's what the public likes. That's the merit of the thing, the literary value. It's to call up the scene before them. It's to enable the humblest citizen to enjoy that afternoon the same as I did. Think what it would have been to me when I was tramping around with my tintypes to find a column and a half of real cultured conversation, an artist in his studio abroad talking of his art, and to know how he looked as he did it, and what the room was like, and what he had for breakfast, and to tell myself, eating tinned beans beside a creek, that if all went well the same sort of thing would, sooner or later, happen to myself. Why, Loudon, it would have been like a peephole into heaven. Well, if it gives so much pleasure, I admitted, the sufferers shouldn't complain. Only give the other fellows a turn. The end of the matter was to bring myself and the journalist in a more close relation. If I know anything at all of human nature, and the if is no mere figure of speech, but stands for honest doubt, no series of benefits conferred or even dangers shared would have so rapidly confirmed our friendship as this quarrel avoided, this fundamental difference of taste and training accepted and condoned. End of chapter 3